Okay, hi everyone. Uh, welcome back this week to House Wine, my wine friends, my wine nerds. Uh, I am once again uh, drinking a sparkling Italian wine tonight, uh, and we're going to be talking about sparkling Italian wine, so it's fitting, uh, though I'm not drinking a Frangicorda, even though we're going to talk about Frangicorda, I'm drinking a Prosecco. I did a Prosecco tasting uh uh, consortio, like a masterclass, uh, Prosecco tasting today. And I still have a, I have so much Prosecco in my fridge, more Prosecco than I've ever had in my fridge. Uh, and we tasted through some rose Prosecco, which was really delightful. It's the first year that we will see. They've always kind of made rose Prosecco. It's not a new thing per se. But it's the first year that it's been, uh, legally recognized by the DOC of Prosecco. So it's the first year that it's like a legally designated wine. So people are very excited about it. Uh, but yeah, but we're going to go into all things uh, Frangicorda. But before we did, I wanted to pick up uh, from last week or two weeks ago now, because I, I skipped a week, uh, full disclosure, it was like, it was a crazy, a crazy uh, week. Everything was, you know, I had was plugging away, doing my writing, etc. And uh, and then the government just out of the blue announced that Ontario was, um, or not Ontario, but Toronto specifically was able to reopen patios and then everything, you know, went uh, hog wild from there. So it was quite the, um, it was quite the weekend, but life has restabilized-ish. Uh, and now I'm able to record and drink some beautiful Prosecco uh, with all of you. But uh, I wanted to talk about uh, disability in wine before the Beaujolais episode, but uh, Stephen Spurrier passed away, so I ended up doing a, a, you know, just mentioning that that happened. I didn't memorialize him very well, but uh, just mentioning that it happens. So I want to touch on something quickly before I continue on uh, and get to the meat of this episode. A couple months ago now, I believe, um, I think it was after I did the Napa episode, so a few months ago even, uh, a listener reached out via email. You can do that too if you need. It's housewinepodcast uh, at gmail.com. And it was right after I'd gone on a bit of a rant uh, about the sort of state of affairs in wine after the New York Times article came out uh, about, you know, women uh, being sexually harassed in wine. And I think I said something to the effect of, you know, if you're a woman, uh, BIPOC, a woman of color, uh, part of the LGBTQ2 plus community, that you will face some kind of gatekeeping regarding your journey in wine. Uh, and it might not come in the form of, you know, somebody specifically sort of standing over you saying you're not welcome here, but there will be some barrier of entry that needs to be broken down. Uh, and it was pointed out to me that I didn't mention people with disability on this list. And it's true, because uh, it really wasn't on my radar at the time. Now, I have friends who identify as queer. Uh, one of my main partners in crime and all-time best study buddies uh, for all things wine happens to be a woman of color. And we've had, you know, many a chat over a glass of wine about gatekeeping and things that... uh you may be in for or may be different for you if you're part of a minority group in wine. Uh, but as a uh, cisgendered, non-disabled white woman, there have been many times in my life where I've been called out for things uh, or things have been brought to my attention that made me kind of sit back and take a moment and go, huh, like I didn't actually factor that in based on my own experience. 
And I don't work with any people who identify as disability. And so thank you for bringing this to my attention. It sent me down quite a rabbit hole. I don't like to talk about anything unless I feel like I have done uh, a little bit of due diligence and researched it enough for me to feel competent talking about it. So it took me some time uh, to really dive into the subject. And I tried to do my you know, best research on it. And this is sort of what I found out is that there are organizations that are dedicated to making wine and hospitality more accessible for people who identify with disability. And that many of these organizations are American. Uh, one of them is Wine on Wheels. And this is an organization dedicated to raising money for causes that help people with disabilities, but is headed up uh, by Yannick Benjamin, who's an advanced sommelier and uses a wheelchair. He's also part of an, initi an initiative called Wheeling It Forward, uh, and there has been a fair amount of press about an Italian sommelier named Mirko Pastorelli, who also uses a wheelchair, and his journey to becoming a sommelier and working on the floor. I thought both of them did a very good job at representing their particular story and how uh, they've managed to uh, navigate working on the floor in everything I read about both of them. I did, however, find it interesting that most of the media and most of the coverage of sommeliers and wine professionals had to do with, A, only the challenges of working on the floor. Uh, as we know, there are many venues in which you can participate in the wine industry. Uh, you can be in sales. You can be in education. You don't necessarily have to work on the floor of a restaurant. Uh, and I also found it interesting that, B, most of the media and most of the attention around people with disabilities working in wine centered primarily on people who use wheelchairs. I, I was hard-pressed to find resources about people who identify with other disability um, and have navigated working in the hospitality or wine industry, including people with learning disabilities, uh, people with, you know, blindness or people with deafness. So it's really cracked open this real point of interest for me as the wine world seems to have embraced this concept of a sommelier who uses a wheelchair, uh, but there seems to be sort of a blank space when you look for the experiences of others who identify with, dis with disability. And I'm not diminishing like the experiences of Yannick or Marco, but uh, I am curious how the wine world treats those who identify as disabled but do not use wheelchairs, because I think their voices have been very... They've both gotten a lot of press, and both of their stories are very uh, public. So, you know, what are the challenges? What are the barriers? Um, are they physical? Are they experiential? How do you go about navigating the subject? Uh, and I'm going to keep digging on it. <laughs> so if in the future there is somebody uh, listening to this who uh, does identify with having a disability, please email me. I would love to do an interview with you and I would love to have you on and just hear about your experiences and make them uh, more public <laughs> and make them more known. Uh, so this is, this, is my, this is my call to action, if you will. I would really love to hear about firsthand experiences. So that said, if you are looking to enter the wine industry or work in wine, what I would do uh, if you're not certain or you feel unsure is to seek mentorship. Uh, not all sommeliers mentor people, but a good number do, and a good sommelier who mentors would be happy to have you. Uh, there are so many ways you can work in this industry, should there be physical or other barriers, like I said. And I think the fact of the matter is we still need uh, trailblazers in this industry in terms of representation. So there are allies out there. <laughs> Unfortunately, you have to seek them out, but they are there. And in regards to mentorship, I do think that it's one of the most rewarding things you can do as a sommelier. 
I also think that you may get uh, turned down when you ask for it, but you just have to keep asking because there are people out there who will mentor you uh, and you just need to sort of knock on the door a few more times. Okay, <laughs> so that's 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 as far as I got. It was it was a, it's been a very tricky subject to dive into because there's just really not a lot about it. I think it's worth talking about, and I think there's a lot to explore. So we'll keep exploring. We'll keep thinking about it. We'll keep talking about it. And uh, before we talk about frangicorda, I just want to touch on one last note: the idea of you work for me, therefore I'm your mentor is bullshit. <laughs> I have uh, a very personal uh, one-on-one relationship with all my mentees and none of them work for me, uh, except for potentially one. But it's like this sort of like, you've gotten your foot in the door with me because you're my you know, subordinate is not mentorship. That's laziness. So sommeliers, get off your butts, mentor properly. That's all I got. Uh, so now let's talk about Frangicorda after that lengthy intro, pretty deep intro. I get very, very passionate when I talk about mentorship. Mentorship is my favorite thing. I was, I was lucky enough to be mentored. I've mentored, you know, many people go like many people on my own as I was moving forward as a sommelier. And it's just every single time I mentor somebody, it just like it just makes you feel so warm and fuzzy and you, you love that person for life. And usually they end up loving you for life. And it's just, uh, you know, it's the best. But now we're going to take a, a turn. <laughs> we're going to come out of left field. I know this whole time uh, we've been France, 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 a little bit of USA, France, France, France. Everything's been France, uh, except I guess we did South Africa too. But we've done a lot of France, and it's just because it's kind of easy to get stuck in this France rut. And usually I would like to do a wine law episode before I foray into anything about a country that we haven't talked about yet. But I think in Italy, we can kind of get away with doing just a few of the sparkling wine regions before we really have to double down on wine law. I mean, in many ways, Franciacorta is much more Champenoise than it is like any of the wine regions in Italy. But the history here is very interesting. And as I dove into Franciacorta this week, I learned a lot. I have to admit, I started making this podcast uh, in a bit of a bubble. This was sort of like my COVID hobby on steroids. But I'm one of those people who, when I do something, I guess I can't just like do a little of something. Uh, I always seem to go all in. It's like, can't just knit a scarf, need to start a podcast and set up a sound recording booth in my bedroom. But making this podcast was really my way of escaping the doldrums of covid life. That said, researching Frangicorda has been the first time in a really long time that I have genuinely yearned for life before COVID. Making this episode made me want to travel so badly. One of my resources for this episode was Frangicorda.net. And they they have a pretty good website, all things considered, that's put up by the Consortium of Frangicorda. Now, They've gone and made their own little Frangicorda movie, uh, a little bit modeled after it seems in the style of like a year in Burgundy or a year in Champagne, but it's only about 20 minutes, and it's called F for Frangicorda. And I watched it through twice uh, for two reasons. The first was it made me want to travel so very, very badly. Uh, So deep in my soul, I was moved. I wanted to go back to Italy, you know, and sit on a terrace and drink Frangicorda. 
nod and smile while a bunch of old Italian men, you know, describe the definition of terroir to me or whatever happens when you go on wine trips. But I also like this video a lot because there was uh, a lot about the process of making wine in it. And they really didn't shy away from showing the mech, like the mechanization of winemaking, which, as I thought about Frangicorda and the history of this region, is really so important to talk about when we talk about sparkling wines, because so much of that process is highly mechanized all over the world. But so often that's something that's kind of hidden away. You know, you're getting a tour of the winery and you're like, hey, what's behind that door? And they're like, nothing. Nothing, come look at the barrel room again. Uh, and the thing that's behind that door is, you know, a bottling line the size of a city block. And there's a moment in this little film where they have this huge wide shot of grapes coming off the sorting conveyor belt and being dropped into vats to be crushed, all while these, like, robotic arms are taking baskets of grapes and dumping them onto conveyor belts to be sorted. And then it cuts to two guys in a barrel cellar, and they are just lifting the plug out of the barrel and putting their ear to it. And the one guy literally just like whispers to the other, the fermentation has started. And I thought this was just like a really sweet moment, <laughs> this little cut scene between this like huge wine assembly line and then these guys in a cellar listening to fermentation. Anyways, I will put this video <laughs> in the description uh, in the uh, description box and, and uh, link it up so you can all go check it out. So in a nutshell, what is Frangicorda? It is Italy's premier sparkling wine region. It is a DOCG, that is Domination d'Origine Controllata Garantita, the highest level of Italian wine classification, and it is in Lombardy, right at the north center on the Italian map. Uh, if this boot is a fancy fur trim uh, boot, then that fur at the top is Frangicorda. Also, Lombardy is in the same province as Milan, so not a completely out of left field as we are really talking about a wine region that is next door to one of the fashion capitals of the world. Frangicorda, like many of the wine-growing areas in Italy, has a very long history of making wine. Really, the whole north of Italy was part of a major trade route through antiquity, so we see lots of grapes cropping up here. And some of them are indigenous Italian varietals and varieties, and some have been brought by way of Germany, Austria, and France, and then, you know, some other crazy places. So traditionally, this has always been a region that was growing international varietals. That is to say, grapes that are not necessarily indigenous to Italy. Things really started to heat up on the wine scene in Frangicorda in the 1100s. This is when monks from France moved into the region and established Cistercian and Benedictine monasteries. Like in many regions where monks moved in, though they had been making wine there before, the monks really got things moving. Because where there are monks, they start making a lot more wine. Historically also, monks would write and keep records, so a lot of the time the establishment of a monastery in the region usually coincides with the first written record of wine production. The Cistercians were a very rich and powerful order of monks who were quite well known around Europe at this time for their prowess with the grapevine. These guys were really quite busy dividing up vineyards of Burgundy right around the same time that they were moving into Frangicorda. In fact, they had so much influence and sway at the time that this is where Frangicorda gets its name. The area used to be known as Corte Franca, meaning free courts, in that they were exempt from paying taxes. Even now, the DOC, 
Uh, DOC is the one rung down the ladder. Behind DOCG, it's Domination d'Origine Controllata, drop the G, that shares the exact same geographical delimitation as Frangicorda, but still makes wine from international varietals, think Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Chardonnay, is still called Kirk de Franca, DOC, still another original name of the region where the monks did not have to pay taxes. As you will know, if you've listened to the episode about sparkling wine, you'll know that the sparkling wine we enjoy now, uh, like I'm enjoying at this moment, is relatively a uh, modern phenomenon. Though there have been some, you know, semi-sparkling Petnat styles lurking around uh, in the 1100s, probably Frangicorda itself, or rather the DOC of Corte Franca, was all still wines. Uh, sounds confusing. <laughs> but Frangicorda is sparkling, and Corte Franca is not sparkling. Just still wine. And this happens all the time in Italy, and I mean, who am I kidding? All over France and all over the old world, too, where you have a separate appellation for a different style of wine in the exact same geographical delimitations uh, and the exact same region. So while Curta Franca can trace its origins uh, over 900 years, Frangicorda is still just a little baby in the context of the wine world. This DOCG has only really been around since 1961. And I don't mean that that was the year that it got classified as a DOCG. The only bottle of sparkling wine made in the traditional method ever was first made out of the 1961 vintage. They did not, however, achieve their DOCG status until 1995. Now, I already mentioned that this region is close to Milan. And, well, Milan is rich. In the same way that Paris is rich, it was really solidifying its place in the mid-20th century as a modern capital for fashion and art, and there was a demand for quality, sparkling wine. Of course, you can always import champagne, but it was Guido Berlucci that sometime in the early 1950s thought, well, why not just make our own? And it was actually Berlucci, who was a businessman, partnered with winemaker Franco Zinali, Z-I-L, I-A-N-I, who had trained in France, uh, with the question being, why can they not make an Italian wine using French methods? And their first harvest trying to make this wine was in 1956. You know, both of them were very excited and anxious to bring this wine into the world, and it was a flop. They essentially ruined the wine, uh, and it was undrinkable, and more importantly, unsellable. What they lacked was not skill, uh, but rather proper equipment, Uh, to make such a labor-intensive style of wine. It would take them another five years to fine-tune the process, and that is when they released the first vintage of sparkling wine in the region. And that is why, technically, 1961 is the official birth year of Frangicorda. And this wine took off. People were very impressed by this champagne-style wine coming out of northern Italy. And in just a few years, it was not just Berlucci, and that is also the name of the wine and the winery. Uh, I guess Berlucci put up the money for it, so the project got to take on his name. This is what the wines are still called today. But it wasn't just them who took on this project. They, a lot of other people started following suit. It caught on. And within just 10 years of making the initial sparkling wine that set things in motion, There were now dozens of houses making Frangicorta. So what was just a thousand hectares of wines that were making that still Corta Franca wine before Berlucci, there were now 19 village communes that make up the whole region and 6.7 million bottles produced a year, which is quite large. So what makes this region so special? Well, the proximity to Milan helps uh, when launching these wines, but really it's a lake. 
It's a lake called Lake Diseo, D apostrophe I S E O, that sits between the north of Franciacorta and the Alps. The whole region at one time was a glacier that melted into this kind of amphitheater around the lake. As we know, grapes love a good body of water. It has a moderating effect on climate, and the soils here are very rich from that glacial erosion. The wines here are made from Pinot Nero. I'll give you a couple. <laughs> maybe I'll just like do like a countdown to see if you can figure out what Pinot Nero. Pinot Nero is just Pinot Noir. It's the Italian way of saying Pinot Noir. Uh, Chardonnay. The Italians don't have a fancy way of saying Chardonnay. They just keep it Chardonnay, and Pinot Bianco, which is the Italian way of saying Pinot Blanc. So not dissimilar from the wines of Champagne. They do have a native grape that is indigenous to the area they are, that they are allowed to include in the blend. And this is a grape called Erbamat, E-R-B-A-M-A-T. And it's a very old grape uh, with a pretty new story, uh, a story that's becoming sort of more and more popular all over Europe. And this grape is a recent inclusion and has only become part of the blend in 2017. As the region is seeking to fight climate change, or rather embrace the changing climate and include a grape that is late ripening, but also very high acid at harvest. Where this used to be the job of Chardonnay, the job of giving the wine its crisp acidity and mineral finish, Chardonnay is ripening faster due to the warmer climate, and they are experimenting with other grapes that will help give the desired finished product in the wine. Now, I'm not going to get too into how this wine is made. Uh, if you don't know how champagne is made, then listening, listen to the episode on sparkling wine. Uh, I'm not going to get into it, but the main thing is that these wines are made in a traditional method, in the champagne method, and so they're done with a second fermentation. Basically, still wine is made, and they re-ferment it in the bottle. Now, there are several styles of frangicorda, much like the way uh, they make sparkling wine. They also borrowed these styles from the champenoise. There is dosaggio zero, which means that during the step where they add liqueur d'expedition, well, they just don't. Uh, in France, sometimes they call this brut nature, sometimes they call it zero dosage. There's tons and tons of uh, synonyms for this. Uh, there's also a frangicorta rosé, pretty self-explanatory. There is millissimato, which means vintage. Uh, so this is used a lot of times for special cuvées, and it has to be aged 30 months on the lees. There is a reserva, aged for 60 months on its lees, lees being those dead yeast cells uh, that give the wine that sort of funky, earthy, bready character. And then, of course, regular frangicorda is aged for 18 months on its lees, so even a little longer than your typical entry-level champagne, which is, quotations only, <laughs> aged for 15. Rosé and zero dosage wines can be reserva. They can also be millisomato. Millisimato. I am not, I'm not gonna like, I can't do it. <laughs> not, I'm a French, I speak French, I do not speak Italian, but sometimes I like try and like I put on this Italian inflection and then I hear myself do it and I get, I just cringe. <laughs> like, no, but they can be millisimato and they can also be Satan. And Satan, not Satan. Like, not the devil, but Satan, S-A-T-E-N. Satan for me is where Frangicorda gets interesting because this is a designation that is really unique to Frangicorda. 
And St. Anne wines can be rosé. They can also be zero dosage. But they're only aged for, well, they're aged for 24 months. So they're kind of like this, like, in-betweener of aging between uh, regular frangicorda and vintage frangicorda. But the really interesting thing about Seitan wines is that these wines are made with less sugar in the liqueur de triage, which means that there is less CO2 produced in the second fermentation, also less alcohol. The bubbles tend to be a little smaller, a little bit more delicate, and these wines are always made in a brute style, so they're technically dry. Also, Seitan is the Italian word for silk because these wines are usually thought to have a creamy and light finish. So who's making wine here? We already know Berlucci, the founder of this region, who still makes wine today. But we also know that after the initial success, uh, there were a ton of people who jumped on this bandwagon. And arguably the most famous are Bella Vista and Cadel Bosco. Bella Vista is one of the larger producers of Frangicorda, but they're still known for pretty quality wines. But they're also a very new winery. They're only established in 1981, though they do make every single kind of frangicorda that was mentioned in this episode. I also watched a bunch of videos on their website, and I will tell you again, they really made me want to travel. I want to be in Italy. Cadel Bosco is another producer, so that's C-A apostrophe D-E-L Bosco, B-O-S-C-O. And they're very interesting. It was originally bought as a chestnut farm by Anna Maria Clementi Zanella. But after the beginning of Frangicorda sparkling wine, re- that renaissance, uh, her husband decided that they were going to uproot all the chestnuts and start a winery. So they did. And now they make Cadel Bosco. They also make Curta Franco wines. So those red wines uh, that are still also made just a little bit in the region. Uh, but they make exceptional Frangicorda. It wasn't until the mid-70s that they really started making wine and getting into the wine scene. Now, today their top cuvee is Anna Maria Clementi, as a nod to the woman who started it all by buying that chestnut farm. One of the nice things about a bottle of Cato Bosco, and this is true for Frangicorda pretty much across the board, is that they come in a little cheaper than champagne. Champagne pretty much has the best marketing in all of history, and don't get me wrong, the wines are amazing, uh, and I love them, but they can at times be price prohibitive. And if you want to celebrate, uh, there are alternatives, and a good alternative is frangicorda. Even though the wines of frangicorda are technically aged for a little bit longer, and even though they are, for all intents and purposes, the premier sparkling wine of Italy, I mean, time will tell if anybody can catch up to the was. Uh, in the terms of sparkling wine and in terms of cachet, in terms of price. But yeah, frangicorda, not, I mean, it's still expensive, but it's not as expensive as champagne. Of course, Cadel Bosco and Bella Vista are two huge producers. There are smaller, more niche producers too. Uh, Villa Frangicorda is an estate that owns all of their own vineyards, all 37 hectares. And these wines are delicious, if you can overlook the less than original name of the house. <laughs> and one of my Personal favorites is uh, Corte Ora, C-O-R-T-E-A-U-R-A. They only produce seven wines, uh, all sparkling frangicordas in a range of styles, and these wines are really stunning. I mean, they're just like really, really good. So if you're going to ring in this nice weather this week with a bottle of Seitan frangicorda, uh, then you know what to do. <laughs> you know to scroll down, leave a rating, subscribe, or review. That's the best way you can show your support if you're liking learning about different wines, different wine regions with me. 
Uh, this is an independent podcast. All episodes are written, narrated, and produced by me, Rachel. So like and subscribe, show your love. Uh, if you have spotted a correction or you would like to get in touch with me or request an episode, there are two ways. The first uh, is that you can email this podcast at housewinepodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can check out the podcast's very own Instagram at housewinepodcast. You can also check me out there too at Rachel Picard, that's A-E-L, uh, and then Picard like the captain. And the art is done by at K-L-Y-L-A-U-R-E-N, Kelly Lauren. Uh, I hope that wherever you are, you're out walking and enjoying what for me is lovely six degree weather. Uh, but maybe you're on the hunt for a beautiful bottle of Rosé Satan to enjoy. And I hope you do. Have a great week. <laughs>